we are entering into Holy Week, and I'm so encouraged that as we walk through the Gospel of Luke together as a church, we find ourselves right in the middle of the first Holy Week. This week, I'm going to preach a message on the story in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus miraculously preparing the Passover meal for him and his disciples. And Pastor Sam's going to preach next week on Easter Sunday about the story of this feast that they take together that we call the Last Supper now. Now back in 2009, a long time ago, I was driving home with my then-girlfriend on New Year's Day from South Dakota. We were on I-90, which seemed to me like the straightest, boringest, most open bit of roadway I've ever been on. And it was New Year's Day, so there was no one else on the road. We were in her family's Buick. It was a beautiful car, really well-maintained. I'm pretty sure it had a V8 engine in it, which is gigantic for a little car. And I found my foot just resting against the pedal a little heavier as we traveled home. The car went so smooth. We were going 70 and 75, then 80. But there's no one out there, so why not? Why not 85? Okay, 90. Kept pushing on the pedal, 95. I promise, the car was so smooth that it didn't feel like it, okay? So if anyone's thinking I'm crazy. Okay, so we set the cruise control somewhere around there and are just cruising home. And a car zips by going the other way and kind of looks like a police car. And I look in my rearview mirror and I see this car coming through the median with its lights flashing. And at this moment, I had this terrible thought. I just popped into my mind that said, you know, you're already going so fast. You could probably just go to the next exit and get off and he'll never find you. Thankfully, thankfully, I just pulled over. Okay, thankfully, I pulled over and got the biggest speeding ticket of my life. And what's so scary about that story to me, what's so scary about it, is how did I go from driving home to celebrate New Year's with my family to thinking about running from a police officer? Isn't that kind of messed up? The way that happened was there was a gradual descent. Like I made one bad decision, which led to another bad decision, which led to another bad decision, which led to another bad decision, which almost led to me doing something catastrophic that I could have regretted for the rest of my life. And the question I want to ask this morning is, does the same thing happen to us ever in our spiritual lives? Like, are we in the similar danger in our spiritual lives? Could we start off with small compromises? A little lie there, a little lustful look there. That leads to other compromises and bigger compromises and bigger compromises until we find ourselves doing something catastrophic in our spiritual lives. 
I think that should be one of the questions we ask ourselves is how can we keep ourselves from ever doing something catastrophic, something that we'll regret for the rest of our lives, something that we see Judas do in this text. So that's the question I want us to answer this morning is how do we keep from going to that place spiritually where we could potentially do something that we would regret forever? What is God's way of keeping us, keeping us from making that mistake? That's what we're going to see as we jump into our text this morning. So let's get in and let's learn from the Lord about how we can keep ourselves from ever going somewhere we would never want to go. Verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on a mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the, and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. We could describe this time in Jesus' ministry as it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Okay, why was it the best of times? The Hebrew people, the Israelite people, had something that no other people had ever had. They had God in the flesh communicating with them face-to-face, telling them about his kingdom, telling them about himself. How wonderful that would have been to have God himself standing there communicating with them, telling them about himself. This is probably the time of greatest influence in Jesus' ministry. In one sense, he's in the temple. He's in the capital city. He's in the most important religious site, getting the most attention And he's able to teach with masses of people about who God is. It also happens to be the biggest time of year. Verse 22 says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So this time of year is a feast for the people of Israel. It's the most important feast of the year. It has two different names. It's called Unleavened Bread. It's called the Feast of Passover. And as a result, people would have been flocking to the city from all over the country. You guys remember when the Super Bowl was here in Minneapolis? How people flocked from all over the country to come be here in Minneapolis. This would have been a similar feel in Jerusalem around this time. People would have been flocking from all over the place to be in Jerusalem. The population of the city would have been swelling. And there would have been a sense of buzz, a sense of anticipation, as Jesus is here teaching in the temple. The things that he was teaching were extreme. The people of Israel would have been faced with two responses. Will we crown this man as king or will we reject him? Okay, so we're going to see how they respond to him. Okay, we could also say that this was the worst of times. Look at verse 2 with me. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So the leaders of the people who Jesus came to minister to were trying to find a way to kill Jesus. Can you imagine that? They were trying to kill Jesus. You see, the attention was on him at this point. 
There's probably a sense of envy growing as the teachers who are used to having the focus and attention of the people on them, it was now on Jesus. Right? That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to prepare the people to worship God. And then when God shows up, they want to kill him because the spotlight goes on him instead of them. There's a sense of envy. But they have a problem. You guys see what the problem is? There's people watching. There's people all around Jesus. The very crowds that they want the allegiance of, the very crowds that they want the attention of, are crowds that are fixated on Jesus. So if they walk up there and kill him, or they pay someone to kill him, they'll lose those people that they want to follow them. So they want to kill him, but they can't. They want to kill Jesus, but they can't. They need help. And that's where we enter verse 3 of our text. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Those are some ugly words. Satan entered into Judas. Satan is less of a first name and it's more of a title. It means the enemy. It means the adversary. This is the first enemy of God we see in the garden. The, te- the, the serpent, the devil are some other names for him. He sets himself in opposition to God and to God's purposes. And this enemy is going to enter into Judas in order to betray Jesus as an attempt to stop him and to stop his ministry. Now, one question we're going to want to ask is what does it mean that Satan entered into Judas? Does anyone want to know that? What does that mean that Satan entered into Judas? I don't think it means that suddenly, like demonic possession, Satan entered into him and took control of him and he was no longer making decisions and Satan was just making decisions for him. I don't think that's what it means at all. Because later in the Bible, when Luke is writing in the book of Acts and reflecting back on these events, what he says is Judas received a reward for his wickedness. So Judas is acting wickedly, and if Judas is acting wickedly, he's making real decisions for which he's accountable. So rather than Judas suddenly getting taken over, What this is describing is the end result of a long string of decisions Judas made, where he gradually came under the rule of Satan and gradually gave in to the influence of Satan until it could be said that Satan entered into him. Another gospel message, uh, the book of John, the, the Gospel of John in chapter 12 talks about Judas helping himself to the money purse long before he ever betrayed Jesus. So the thought we should have is a downward trajectory that this man was walking on. 
of making compromise and compromise that led to bigger compromise until he did the most awful thing anyone could ever think of. He betrayed Jesus. What we should see is that there is a spectrum, and we're all on that spectrum. The spectrum is being under the rule and influence of God or being under the rule and influence of Satan. All of us are on that spectrum right now. These two kingdoms are competing for every single one of our allegiances right now as I speak. And the decisions that we make today are going to lead us more under the influence of Satan or more under the influence of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Every day there are things competing for the allegiance of our souls and we're moving closer to one of those kingdoms. What this does is it heightens the importance of every decision that we make as we follow Jesus. Just for example, today, if I spend more of my mental effort and energy fixating on how I can get wealthier, what I can do to enrich myself with my money, worrying about what will happen if I lose money, like Judas, money will get a tighter and tighter grip on me. But if I grow in sacrificial giving, if I grow in worshipfully offering my money to God, then God and the Holy Spirit will be getting more and more of a grip on me. We're on a spectrum. We're in a war for our souls. So now let's talk about how Judas ended up joining Satan and opposing Jesus. Like, what does that even mean, right? Did Judas ever think, like, did Judas ever consciously think, I'm going to obey Satan now. Like, I'm going to fulfill Satan's will and obey him. I don't think he ever thought that. I don't think Judas ever thought that. The way that we oppose God, the way that we oppose Jesus, is not by consciously saying, I'm going to follow Satan. It's by having higher priorities other than Jesus. Right? Jesus is on the throne and he rules over all and he deserves all worship and allegiance. So any time that we try to put something above him, we're inherently opposed to him and we're inherently joining Satan whether we consciously realize it or not. Judas never likely thought, I'm going to join Satan in opposing Jesus. He probably just gradually elevated money and wealth until it was above Jesus, and he found himself partnered with Satan, opposing Jesus. Church, because our decisions that we're making today are leading us further and further into the kingdom of Satan, or further and further into the kingdom of Jesus, I plead with every one of us, let's repent early and often. Let's repent early and often. Let's not allow sin to get any bit of a grip on any of us. It seems like the results are small when we commit a small sin, but small sin becomes big sin and can have devastating results. 
So let's repent early and often. The greatest tragedy of all, the greatest tragedy of all is when someone like Judas takes so many steps towards the kingdom of Satan that they never come back. Right? To be under the influence of Satan, to say that Satan entered into him, is to say that he went all the way and gave himself completely into his sin. He never came back to Jesus. What this passage is, is a warning to us against thinking that we can just keep walking away from Jesus and suddenly there's going to be a chance to come back to him. There's no guarantee that our hearts will ever turn back. So you might be hearing to me and you might be worried, Ross, is this me? Have I ever crossed this point of no return? And the answer is not if you want Jesus. And not if you want to want Jesus. The beautiful thing in this text, in this Bible, is that anyone who wants Jesus can come to him. As long as you want to come to him, you have never crossed the point of no return. And there might be someone here today who's come here this morning after a week of sinning and disobeying Jesus, and you're wondering, will he have me back? He will. He will. So don't sin any longer. The point of this text isn't that any of us have to be like Judas. The point of this text is we don't have to be like him. Flee. Heed his warning. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never come under the influence of Jesus, who's never become his disciple, who's never followed him, and you want to this morning, he wants you as well. And we want you as well. This warning is not to create despair, it's to wake us up so that we can come to life. So come back to life today. Come back to life today. What we see Luke describing is probably the counterfeit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So whenever the, God does something, Satan tries to undermine it and counterfeit it and replace it in his own kingdom. So what we want more than anything is to be under the influence of the Spirit. That is to be obeying him, to be empowered, to be like him, to be following Jesus. The satanic counterfeit of that is what we're seeing in the life of Judas. Rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's being filled with Satan. So the way to be free from the influence of Satan is to be full of the Spirit. God has something equally beautiful, equally powerful as that is awful for us. We can be filled with the Spirit. There is a way out of the temptation of the evil one, and it is in God and in his Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at verse 5. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray, to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Now going back to sin, 
it grows and always becomes more than we bargained for when we tolerate it in our lives. Do you think that Judas ever saw himself doing this one day? Like when he first decided to follow Jesus, do you think he ever saw himself selling Jesus? He probably never saw this happening. People who steal from work, have affairs, look at grotesque pornography, or use heavy drugs don't imagine themselves doing those things either. They find themselves there after a steady stream of compromises and dissent. This is a reminder to us that our sin is not harmless. We like to think it is. That our little lies, lustful glances, and envious thoughts are not harmless like we think they are. They are little monsters that are about to become big monsters and kill us. And when they're small, we have a chance to kill them. And it's much easier to put them to death today rather than tomorrow. So I'm pleading with us, I'm pleading with myself today to put my little sins to death today before they threaten my spiritual life tomorrow. We have a gracious chance from God today, don't we, to repent. We have a gracious chance from God today to repent. And oh, that we would grow in putting our sin to death together. Notice also that appearances mean nothing. Appearances mean nothing. Judas appeared like one of the 12 closest people to Jesus. People probably thought of him as a pretty holy person. At the Last Supper in the next text, Jesus will say, one of you is going to betray me, and none of the disciples know who it is. So they are oblivious to who Judas really is. So just a reminder to myself, to all of us, that you can fool one another, but you can't fool God. He can see what we're really loyal to. He can see what we're really doing. He knows what we really love. And just a call to us to repent of our sin and kill it before it kills us. Amen. Amen. Now that we've talked about the influence of Satan and what a scary, weighty idea that is, how would you guys like to know how to escape the influence of Satan? How would you guys like to know how to get away from this enemy of our souls? How would you guys like to know the path that Jesus has set out for us instead? That's what we're going to see in the next story here, is how to completely come under the control and influence of Jesus rather than the influence of Satan. There's a way for him to not have control over our lives. There's a way for him to not have a grip on our hearts and be leading us away from Jesus. There's a way to break the chains, and that's what we're going to see in this next text. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So it's the day of the feast. It's arrived. 
the biggest holiday of the year, the biggest meal of the year. And Jesus says something crazy. He picks out James, or he picks out Peter and John, and he says to them, Go prepare the feast so we'll eat it later today. Does anyone think how nuts that is? Like if I called up Jerry and Charlotte this morning, our deacons, and without any forethought said, go and prepare the potluck today so that we may eat it, how do you guys think that would go? So this isn't just Jesus giving some like small little task to these disciples. This is a test of faith. He's asking them to come up with a place for them to enjoy this meal. He's asking them to come up with food and a sacrificial lamb. He's asking them to do it on the same day that the city would have been full of dozens and dozens of people all looking for the exact same stuff. Sorry, more than dozens, hundreds of people looking for the same stuff. Does that seem challenging to anyone? Okay. Okay. Right here, we see the disciples respond in a different way than Judas does. Let's take a look at verse 9. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Where will you have us prepare it? At the disciples' moment of need, we find themselves drawing close to Jesus, to receive from Jesus, to obey Jesus. It's been said before that God provides for us what he requires from us. So God, if God were to require his disciples to prepare this feast, he's also going to provide everything they need to prepare that feast. In order to have loyalty to Jesus, in order for the disciples to have loyalty to Jesus, the disciples have to trust Jesus to meet their needs. There's two things we see together going together in this text with these disciples. There's an intense loyalty to Jesus, and there's a trust that he'll meet their needs. And these things always go together. What you're looking to to meet your needs is what you'll be most loyal to. So I just got married a little while ago, and as a result... (laughs) As a result of getting married, I became the owner of a little dog named Felix, who looks a lot like a teddy bear. And I love him a lot, even though he's annoying. And part of marrying Charlotte that I didn't realize was that I would begin to take care of the dog more and more and more until until I, I, I spend a lot of time with him, meeting his needs, right? giving him water, giving him food, taking him for walks. And I noticed something. I noticed something about this dog since I started meeting his needs. All of a sudden, he comes and lays down at my feet. And he walks around and follows me around the house. And when someone comes through the door, he's barking and he's defending me. As I met this dog's needs, he became loyal to me. And the degree to which we are trusting in God rather than anything else to meet our needs is the degree to which we're going to be loyal to him. The reason Judas betrayed Jesus is because he stopped looking to God and started looking to money to meet his needs. 
When we lose our trust in God to provide for us, we lose our loyalty to God to follow him. The way we can keep from ending up of making spiritual shipwreck of our lives is we need to grow in trusting our God to provide for us and meet our needs. There's one takeaway, one other practice, one application to walk away with. It's let's be a people who daily asks God for our needs and daily thanks God for the needs he's provided for us. We need to cultivate this dependence on us because I promise you, I promise you, where you look for your needs when times are good is where you'll go when times are bad. How many of you feel like you sin the, mo- the worst when you're under pressure, when you're tired, when you've had a rough day? Isn't that when the icky sin comes out? Because that's the moment where you break towards what you've really been depending on. See what I'm saying? You find out what you've been depending on when you're in need. So for me, if I were to give in to lust at my down moment, it must be because I was not fighting it, I was not praying today. I was going there to meet my need on a day-to-day basis, and so when a tough situation comes up, I give in and I go there. But church, the way, the way to be a faithful person, the way to stand when your world is falling apart, the way to stay loyal to Jesus up until the end and never give in is to start growing and trusting him to meet your needs on a day-to-day basis right now. Praying and asking for needs big and small, thanking for needs that he's met. I just remember this one time I was driving home uh, in a blizzard with some of my family and there was unbelievers in the car and we were driving home, several day drive or several hour drive up from Tennessee. It almost became a several day drive because of a blizzard we were in. And I remember at that moment, texting my friends who were Christians and asking them to pray for us, and telling the people in the car that they were going to pray for us. And five or ten minutes later, the blizzard was gone. And I remember other unbelievers in the car being like, "Wow." That was incredible. And my trust grew in God. And day by day, asking him for our needs and thanking him for meeting our needs is what will grow our trust in God. Let us have a reflexive turn to Jesus when we face need or want. Verse 10. So they asked Jesus, provide for us. They asked for Jesus to provide for us the meal. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where, the guest, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. I love this response from Jesus. Jesus is not like some of our earthly fathers or some of our earthly father figures 
who look down on us for being weak, who despise our weakness, who criticize us for being weak. Jesus loves to help weak people who come to him. He loves to help weak people who come to him. There's no one here who ever has to be ashamed of being needy before Jesus. I think one thing that can keep us from really coming to Jesus with our needs is a sense of shame for having needs. You never have to be ashamed before Jesus for having needs. He knows you have needs. He loves to meet your needs. He created you with needs. If Jesus really looked down on you because you needed him, would he have made you that way? Probably not. We never have to be ashamed to come to Jesus with our needs. When they come to Jesus with their needs, he responds with a plan and a provision. As we said before, when Jesus requires something from us, he always provides for us. Now just listen to verse 13 with me. Just listen to it. And they went and found it. Just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus' words always come true. His words don't bend to reality, reality bends to his words. There's not a situation or need you're going through where he does not only know what you need, but he is able to provide for it at exactly the right time. What is our Jesus like, you might ask? He provides abundant feasts out of nothing with his mere words. That's the kind of God we worship. That's the kind of God you serve. Are you struggling to trust him to provide for a particular need today? Is there something that seems outside of his control that creates doubt in your heart? He created the world. He created the pew. He created this church with his mere words. This matter didn't exist until he spoke it into being, and he can speak anything into being he wants to. He can meet your needs. He can meet your needs. He met all of the needs of all of these disciples that afternoon so they can trust him and they can follow him. If you trust that Jesus can provide for you like these disciples, you will be protected from stumbling into sin. This this will protect you, will keep you from sin. Think about it. Whenever we sin, whenever we sin, we first have to believe the lie that God can't or won't provide for us, so then we go elsewhere outside of his will to provide for ourselves. That's how sin works. So you, you, you believe the lie that God can't or won't provide for me, so I go outside of his will to try to provide for myself. That's the, how sin happens. This must have been what's happened for Judas, And right now, every one of us are being tempted in some manner like this. 
So I just have a few questions for myself, a few questions for you, just to ask, where are we struggling to believe that Jesus can provide for us? Do you think about money more than Jesus? And I keep bringing up money because money is what destroyed Judas. Do you think about money more than Jesus? Either a get-rich-quick scheme or your retirement plan. Do you indulge in lustful fantasies or look at pornography? This, my friends, betrays a lack of trust in Jesus to meet your needs for intimacy. Do you pursue relationships that benefit you, striving to associate with popular and powerful people while neglecting and avoiding other people who are not as beneficial to you? This is betraying a lack of trust in Jesus to give you all the significance you need. Every time we find ourselves straying outside of the will of God, we're looking for something besides God to meet our needs. And God's calling us back this morning, saying, I'm going to meet your needs. You don't need to go elsewhere. You don't need to go and be loyal to something else that will destroy you. I will meet your needs. When we stop trusting Jesus, we stop being loyal to Jesus. On the other hand, Satan cannot tempt us away from Jesus as long as we trust that he's able to provide. If any of you feel fear when you read these words about Jesus or about Judas straying away, the place for hope and security and rest is that as long as you are trusting Jesus to meet your needs, Satan cannot take you away from your Savior. He cannot. He'll try and he'll fail because Jesus will meet your needs and you're trusting him. As I close, I just want to say a few more words about this Passover meal and about Jesus' provision. We should note what's going on here. The disciples are sitting around a table eating the Passover lamb together. Right? They're eating a Passover lamb together. The Passover is a holiday that celebrates God's rescue in the past. And Jesus, in a few days, is about to go to the cross where he's going to rescue God's people finally and fully from sin, death, and suffering. And right at that moment, as Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, is serving the Passover feast, they're eating the Passover lamb together. What is that pointing to? That's pointing to the greatest of all of God's provisions for us. The greatest thing that he gives us of all is Jesus himself. Is relationship with him. I really love food and water. I really love it. But I need Jesus. And in the cross, that's what he gives me and what he's offering to every one of us this morning. The greatest evidence that we can trust him to meet all our needs is that he met our greatest need. That's how I know. That's how I know he'll never leave me out to dry when I'm worried. That's how I know he'll never forsake me, how he'll never fail to come through. Because he already met my biggest need by giving Jesus for me, so he's going to meet every other need. 
That's what the Passover meal is showing us this morning. So church, I just want to call us. I want to call us to be a community that's freer from sin than ever because we're trusting in Jesus more than ever to meet our needs and we're not having to go to other broken cisterns. And man, I think we start we start by ourselves being an example of praying to Jesus for our needs and thanking Jesus for meeting our needs and then we go to other people and encourage them to do the same. That's how we're going to help our brothers and sisters be free. That's how we're going to help each other be free is we be these kinds of people who help other people be these kinds of people. And man, how sweet would it be to be a pure community where Satan has no influence here? When you... Our, when we're among our community together, it is the place where Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God hold sway. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're the ultimate Passover lamb and that we get to enjoy you. We want more of you this morning. Help us to receive more of you, more intimacy with you, more joy in you as we worship you in these next few moments. And if there's anyone here, God, who needs to repent, which is all of us, may we repent in these next few moments and turn to you, God. We love you. And thank you for these words. In Jesus' name, amen.